From Nashville, Tennessee, it's the weekly Grace Church Nashville podcast. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Grace Church Nash and use the hashtag located in the podcast description. And now, here's this week's message. Throughout the last four weeks, we've been teaching from the book of James and asking this question, are we living out the faith that we claim to believe? We've covered chapters one through four and the relevant ideas. Say these ideas with me. Do you remember them? Testing and persevering. Come on, speak up. Testing and persevering. There you go. Listening and doing. Faith and work. Speaking and boasting. And this morning, I'm going to be covering James chapter 5. I'm going to be wrapping up our series, and I'm going to be talking about waiting and praying. Again, the dominant theme that we're going to see from this book and this chapter is that faith that is real works practically in our lives. Faith that is true is a faith that works. Faith that is true is a faith that works. We're not saved by our works, but faith that is real works. Charles Spurgeon said, downright living for the Lord Jesus is sadly wanted in many quarters. Christian garnishing we have enough of, but solid everyday actual work for God is what we need. Solid everyday actual work for God is what we need. We need Christians in the trenches with people, walking with people, praying for people, right? Living out this faith, being an example to a lost and dying world. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to be covering three points straight from the 20 verses in James chapter 5. And I'm going to read, as I cover these three points, I'm going to read the pertinent sections. Okay, and we'll get through all 20 verses. I'm going to talk about judgment, talk about praying and waiting. Judgment, waiting, and praying. First, judgment. I'll get to the theme of this, this morning's message with waiting and praying. But the chapter in James 5 verse 1 starts curiously with a warning towards rich people. Now, being rich is kind of interesting. Most people want it, but they won't admit it. There's a quote in Reader's Digest I thought was funny. It says, would you like to be rich? Very few, few of you would say, no, I don't want to be rich, right? Most people want to be rich. If you don't, you're probably lying. One wise guy said, they say it's better to be poor and happy than rich and miserable, but couldn't something be worked out such as being moderately wealthy and just a little moody? I think we'd all admit to that. So we're going to read James chapter 5, 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming. Alexis asked me what I was going to teach on, and I said, weeping and wailing. And she said, oh, Lord. (laughs) Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. This is the Bible. This is the language of the Bible. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. It's okay, I'm not, not just 
It's going to be okay. The idea of these six verses is not that wealth is overtly bad or that the rich go to hell or the poor go to heaven. We see wealthy, righteous men and women all throughout the Bible. Many of you know wealthy, righteous men and women. It's not bad to have wealth. It's not bad to be rich. In fact, riches and grace sometimes go together. The point James is making and the one I want to discuss is that of judgment of injustice. The judgment of injustice. You see, at the moment of salvation, we're saved into such promise and hope and newness and victory. The faith that Jesus has truly crushed Satan under our feet is so real and apparent to us. Our hearts are filled and boldness carries us in that first season. Did y'all experience that? When I was first saved, I had such a boldness. I felt like I was carried by the grace of God. Every scripture was just lit on fire that I read. It was so new. It was so real to my heart. God is near and the flames in our hearts are stoked easily and frequently. Every word that I would listen to, it was like, wow, it's amazing. Such revelation, such food to my soul. But as we walk with the Lord, as we reflect on his promises and dream about the things he's put in our hearts for him to do, what happens? Fulfillment is delayed. Hope is deferred. Victory we once felt looks more like defeat. Newness turns into familiarity. And all the while we watch the world succeed in their endeavors. And we are strongly assaulted with the temptation to envy sinners. We're lured back into the way of the world. These realities can stagnate our faith. Where once we were patient and prayerful, now we're impatient and hasty. We begin to say about the wicked in our hearts as Asaph did in Psalm 73. Listen to me. Listen to this. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're being faithful to God? You're being consistent You're reading the word, you're praying, you're doing the things that you're called to do, and yet you continually face trouble. You continually struggle. Do you feel like that sometimes? And those people who don't care anything about God seem to succeed in everything they do. We cry out like Psalm 13 How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
I'm not talking about judgment of us this morning. James is talking to Christians who are watching the wicked hoard abundance for themselves, cheat others out of money that they rightfully deserve. They're watching the wicked live in luxury, disregarding the needs of others and hurting innocent people for the sake of selfish gain. I still have this... (laughs) I have this picture on my phone of my bank account when I first started my business and Alexis and I were married and I had three accounts and one uh, line of credit and all three accounts had less than $10 in it and the line of credit was fully maxed out. Isn't it funny like when you don't have any money, you don't just have one account with no money, you have three accounts <laughs> with no money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it seemed like I just remember, you know, looking around me and it's like, you know, when you're in that, that place, it looks like everybody else is like on cloud nine. They're just, their lives are amazing. They have so much money. They're so blessed. They're, it's just going so well for them. And you're just, you feel like, man, I'm being faithful, but I'm in the pits. I know, I know some of y'all felt like that before. And the wicked live in abundance. And they still do. We still see it. And this was the plight of many of the Christians that James is writing to trying to be faithful while being taken advantage of and watching the foolish people prosper. In light of this, where does James start this chapter? He starts with judgments and miseries that will come upon the rich, weeping and wailing, rotting wealth, moth-eaten clothes, corroded gold and silver, flesh being eaten like, fl- like fire, slaughter. Why does he start with judgment? If he's writing to Christians, why is he talking about the judgment of the wicked? Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You see, most of us as Christians want to avoid the idea of judgment, the judgment of God. It makes us uncomfortable, even as believers. We think about people we know who haven't embraced Christ, and the idea that they would face judgment is painful to us. And it should be. That should be painful to us. We should cry out for them. The Bible says God does not delight in the death of the wicked, and neither should we. He desires that who? All should be saved. He wants all to be saved. But God's judgment should also bring us great comfort. Great comfort as believers. And that's where James starts chapter 5. Judgment is God rightly dealing with the evil in the world. And he's going to. For anyone who's been on the receiving end of injustice, this should make you long for what James is saying. In fact, the martyrs in Revelation 6 who were slain, the Bible says, because of the word of God and because of their testimony, they cried out with a loud voice. How long? Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. For anyone who ever says, why doesn't God do something about the evil and suffering in the world? You can be sure that wrongs in this world will not go unpunished. You can release vengeance to God because you know a day of vengeance is coming. This is a little bit uncomfortable for some of us. I understand that, but Psalm 91.8, it says, see the reward of the wicked. 
In contrast to the protection of his chosen, God also has appointed a reward for the wicked. God's people are encouraged to look at this truth and carefully consider it. If you want to live out the faith that you claim to believe, look at the reward of the wicked. Look at what they will get, even though they're not getting it yet. Look that God will judge injustice on this earth. He will defend you. He will avenge the wrongs against you. Thank you, Lord. James is reminding believers that the wicked and foolish, despite their temporal success, will be judged. And the Christians experiencing injustice will be avenged. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear. From your eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I encourage you this morning as you spend time with the Lord, think about that. Let that verse be a verse that you meditate on. He will wipe away every tear from every eye. This sermon series is ultimately about encouraging you and enduring in your faith, living out what you claim to believe. And sometimes we find that hard because we find that we don't necessarily get what we think we deserve. If we're to be faithful in waiting and praying, the reality of God's judgment against iniquity has to be considered. It will be a great comfort to you. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be the next day, it may not be next year, but God is coming to avenge his people. As we move on, verse 7, and James goes on to say, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count them as blessed, those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. In light of the judgment that awaits the foolish, James has an encouragement for the people of God. Wait. Wait. Patiently. Wait. But for what? Are we waiting for blessings or a family or a wife or that job that we've always wanted what's he saying for us to wait for i know when i was me and alexis were engaged man you know they'd talk about the return of the lord and i'd be like lord after october 15th just after october 15th you know just let me get there you know and then you get married and talk about the lord i i really want kids let me i really want you know and then after you have kids lord i really there's this thing i want to do in life what are we waiting for? What are we be, to be patient for? Unfortunately, so much of what we're sold in American Christianity is waiting for temporal blessings. 
That's what we're, we're sold. We go to church and it's all message about, you know, just trust the process, right? Your harvest is coming. And I love those things. Listen, those things are good. <clears throat> but I want you to think about something. Do you realize that the blessing on your business or the blessing on your family does not really differentiate you as a Christian? Do you realize that? Don't get me wrong. I want, those, I want my family to be healthy, my business to be blessed. I want to do great things, yada, yada, yada. I want all those things. And those things aren't bad. But if, but if I have all those things, does it truly set me apart within the world as a believer? Can somebody identify me as a Christian because of my earthly blessings? Don't the wicked have those things? Listen, I know a bunch of rich Christians, and I know a bunch of rich non-Christians, and they all have cool stuff. All of them. All right? They all have cool stuff. And, you know, you're too blessed to be stressed, you know, a wooden thing in your half bath. You know, it doesn't do it. It doesn't differentiate you as a Christian. We're no different than the wicked if we think those things differentiate us as Christians. Those things aren't bad. Don't hear that. Doesn't Jesus say he he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust? He causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good? Right? It's common grace. He's good to all of us. Why? Because he's, he's just good. That's how he is. The end solution to our waiting is not a promise fulfilled or a hope realized or a victory won. Those are great. Praise God for those things. The end solution to our waiting is the coming of the Lord. His coming. He's coming to make all things new. Do you long for his return? It's not bad to want nice things or to have success in your endeavors. I'm not saying that. But how easily we can long for lesser things in life. One pastor said, most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. Solomon said, God has set eternity in your hearts. I was made to do this and that. I was made to accomplish. No, you're made to live for eternity. You're made for him. C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires too, not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children, we're far too easily pleased. We wait because he is coming. We're patient because our Lord is returning. Can you get that in your hearts this morning? He's coming back. He's coming back. He is coming. And when I got saved, that you know that we talk about the coming of the Lord, and it was, you know, it felt more conceptual than anything. But as we watch what's going on in the news, we watch what's going on in our neighborhoods, in our schools, amongst people that used to claim the name of Christ. As we see the filth and the iniquity and the perversion that's plaguing this world. We long for his return to make all things new. So how do we wait? 
What are the tangible evidences of our patiently waiting? James gives us a few practical tips. Number one, in verse eight, establish your hearts. We're steady, persistent, unyielding to evil, standing firm in the truth. How do we wait? Establish your hearts. He's coming. No one knows the day or the hour, but he's coming to make all things new. This truth stabilizes us in challenging seasons. If you're going through a tough time, let the truth that Jesus Christ is coming and that you're waiting will yield fruit. Establish your hearts. Number two, don't grumble or complain. I told you when I spoke a few weeks ago, I'm teaching my daughter, like we are not complainers. Hamblins are not whiners. Unfortunately, some Hamblins are whiners still. We're working it out though. But what does James mean? Literally, stop acting like children. Stop it. Shut up. (laughs) Well, Cynthia did this and Johnny did that. Listen, be quiet. Times of hardship can cause us to be less than loving with our Christian brothers and sisters. If somebody's a whiner, have grace on them, okay? And then tell them to be quiet. <laughs> the world will know that you're mine by what? The way you grumble at each other? Complain against each other? Gossip? No, by the way you love one another. This is wildly practical advice. Just stop. If you have a problem with somebody, the Bible gives us, um, Jesus tells us, how do we handle problems with people? Do you know? The first thing you do is you go to them in private. You go to them in private. If you have a problem with somebody in the church, a believer, you go to them in private. Okay? I heard somebody give, I I like this advice. He said, verbalize what you internalize. That's kind of awkward. Right? Hey, John, I got a problem with you. (laughs) You know, it feels awkward to say that. So say that. Hey, this feels really awkward, but, you know, you're a jerk. (laughs) You know? And if James does not, or John, or whoever it is, does not stop being a jerk, what does the Bible say to do? Bring an elder. Bring a person of authority. So that he can hear it not just from your mouth, but from a witness. John, you're a jerk. There's, this is, you know, some of this is spiritual, some of this is really practical, and we in the church have to learn how to deal with things and not gossip about them practically. We've got to learn how to be bold and go up to people. People need this. They need this wisdom. Some people don't know that they're jerks. Some people don't know that they're nosy, you know? All right, I'll move on. Verse 10, what else differentiates us? How we endure suffering. This is a hard one. What's the advice that James gives us? He says, look to the prophets. You know, I, was, I read that verse and I started, there was all these verses that started popping up in my mind. New Testament verses that encourage us to look back to the prophets. Look back to the prophets. How easily we dismiss the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Luke 16, 29 through 31, he said to them, How foolish are you and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? This was when he's talking to the two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. That's a New Testament verse. Luke 16, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Second Peter 3, 2, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have spoken both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and commands given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. The prophets of God obeyed him. They lived for him and waited for him in hope. Yet they did not see the promise of his coming. They didn't realize the Messiah on earth. They weren't there for it. They patiently endured Suffering, And they waited, looked to them for encouragement. Look to them. If you're struggling, if you're going through suffering, look to the prophets, look to the men and women of God and their testimonies of being faithful to the end. Spurgeon says, when we understand that God has a promise, a good purpose, even painful things are put into different perspective. Listen to this. If a man were to attack me with a knife, I would resist him with all my strength and count it a tragedy if he succeeded. Yet if a surgeon comes to me with a knife, I welcome both him and the knife. Let him cut me open even wider than the knife attacker because I know his purpose is good and necessary. He who tested with one hand will support you with the other. Lastly, what marks us as Christians in our waiting? Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Do what you're, you say you're going to do. Stick with something for longer than 10 minutes. I know people that switch things once a year, every year for their entire life. And I promise you, if you would stick with one thing for 10 years... <laughs> You'd get a lot further than if you switch between things every year for 10 years. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. We should be identified as the people of God who stick to our word. If you say you're going to do something, the evidence of you living out what you claim to believe is that you honor your word. When you say, yes, I'll be there, you're there. When you say, yes, I'll do that, you do it. That seems like, you know, duh (laughs) to us. But I'm telling you, do you know how far? You don't have to have a lick of talent. You don't have to have a lick of ability. If you would just be someone of your word, you would follow through on what you say you're going to do. You would be faithful. You're going to get farther in this world, in this time, than probably 95% of people. I promise you. You don't have to be uber talented. Why? Because the world is faithless. They're flighty. That should not characterize us as the people of God. Our yes should be our yes and our no should be our no. So in light of God's judgment and his call to wait, now what? Prayer. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray 
over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. This is amazing. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Praying. Listen, prayer is something, if we're honest with ourselves, that most of us struggle with. And I want to help you practically, as I think James is trying to help us practically with prayer. Prayer is hard. It's hard. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes saying no to other things. If you think that you're going to be a man or a woman of God in prayer, and you think it's just going to come naturally and come easily, and the heavens are going to open, and it's just going to be something, no. It's, It's challenging work. But we are called to hard things. As a person of God, you're called to hard things. You're called to a higher standard. Ian Bounds, I love this quote. He says, spiritual work is taxing work. And men are loath to do it. We don't like doing it. Praying, true praying, costs an outlay of serious attention and time. A payment that flesh and blood do not relish. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Few people are made of such strong fiber that they will make a costly outlay when inferior work will pass just as well in the market. Do you know how busy you can get in church that it, to the point that it really makes you feel good about the things that you're doing and never pray? You can be so busy serving and helping and going to church and preaching and teaching and greeting and doing coffee. And all those things are wonderful. But you can put on a kind of a cloak of godliness and still not have a prayer life. He goes on to say, we can habituate ourselves ourselves to to our beggarly praying until it looks good to us. At least it presents a decent front and quiets the conscience, the deadliest of opiates. We can become lax in our praying and not realize the peril until the damage has been done. Hasty devotions make a weak faith, feeble convictions, and questionable piety. What does Jesus say to Peter when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he's going off and he's praying. He says, how do you endure temptation? Pray. Pray so that you can endure temptation. Spend time in prayer. To cut the praying short makes the whole Christian character short, miserable, and lazy. So these, three, these verses cover three types of prayer. Number one, prayer for each other. Number two, prayer from from ministers. And number three, private prayer. In all three of those instances, how can we make sure that our prayer is effective? James gives us two ways. 
Number one, we must be righteous. Confessing our sins and in right standing with God. It's, it's not the prayer of anybody that's effective. It's not thoughts and prayers that are effective. It's the prayer of a righteous person. Blood-bought. There's one way to God, and it's through Jesus. And we go to God the Father through the blood of Jesus who saved us. It's a righteous person, not declared righteous by your works, by your good attitudes, by how much you serve, but declared righteous by the blood of Christ. You must pray in the name of Jesus. Only the prayer of a righteous person is effective. Number two, it must be earnest and fervent prayer. Earnest and fer- How many times have you prayed earnestly and fervently? Ask yourself that. All these thoughts and you know, prayers, they don't do anything. It must be earnest. The widow who prayed was not just a praying widow. What was she called? The persistent widow. God's acquaintance is not made hurriedly. He does not bestow his gifts on the casual or the hasty comer and goer. To be much alone with God is the secret of knowing him and having influence with him. God yields to the persistency of a faith that knows him. Our laziness after God is our crying sin. I was listening to a minister one time, and I think I've told this story before, but I've listened to Lyndall's stories for 10 years and laugh at them, so you've got to bear with me. All right? They're still funny to me this day, but, you know, when you talk, you kind of tell the same stories. You know, everybody's got that grandparent that, like, I, you know, back in my day, it's like, yeah, Grandpa, I heard that story like 10 times, but I'll listen again. But I might have told this before. But I was listening to a minister, and he's talking to his daughters, and... Um, about who they might marry one day. And uh, this is, you know, close to me because I've got two little girls. And uh, he was teaching them about the character traits of a man that they should consider marrying. And he put a special emphasis on one of those traits. Does God answer his prayers? Does God answer his prayers? And I want to ask you that same question this morning. How do you know you're living out the faith that you claim to believe? Does God answer your prayers? Does he? And I, listen, I get it. We all have prayers that have, that have gone unanswered that may go unanswered until we see him again. I understand that. But the time that you spend with him and the things that you petition him for, the things that you ask of him, do you see him answering those things? Do you see him moving? If you do, that's evidence that you're living out the faith that you claim to believe. Does he answer your prayers? We're living in tough times. It's challenging. I mean, you know, it's relative, Right, we don't have a war on our soil. There's, you know, we all everybody has food on their plates, um, but there, the, the the spiritual climate, and you know, I've been doing ministry here for a long time. Uh, the challenges that I I hear from people, um, just spiritually, internally, um, the attack on on your minds. Um, it's difficult. I know a lot of you are going through really tough things. 
I know it. It's hard. So what do you do? We're waiting for him to come. I'm telling you, set this in your heart. Jesus is coming to right every wrong. He's coming to right every wrong. And when we see him, we will be made like him. Exodus 33.16 What else will distinguish me and your people, Moses says, from all the peoples of the earth? This is the question that we've been asking you for five weeks. What is it in your life that distinguishes you from everybody else on the earth? What is it? Listen, the Israelites were near the mountain of God, but Moses looked upon his glory. That's the heart of this church. If you've been in this church long enough, we long to see him. High and lifted up. Somebody said, and I love this, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. What are you looking at? What are you spending, who are you spending time with? Thank you, Lord. We long to see him high and lifted up to minister to his heart. Why? To make way for his return. To be a people ready. To be a bride spotless. When that's your heart, they're going to say about you. They're going to say about this church. And I believe this with all my heart. When they look upon the people in Grace Church, whether they're here in a service or whether you're out in the community, they're going to say, as they said about the apostles in Acts, we perceive those people have been with Jesus. Is it worth it? Is all your waiting, enduring suffering, your praying, is it worth it? If you're young, I want to encourage you, go find an older saint and ask them. It's been walking with God for 30 years, 40 years. Go ask them, is it worth it? All the trials they've been through, all the pain they've walked through, Ask about the difficult and the lonely seasons. Ask about the seasons they felt forgotten and overlooked. Where they didn't sense his presence as they used to. And then then ask them about the Lord. Is he still full of mercy and compassion? Was the waiting worth it? Was it worth it? Is he still good? And I'm telling you, when they answer, tears will well up in their eyes. As they begin to think about the goodness of God through all their years. It's not the difficulties that they're going to think about. It's not the challenging times. It's not the loneliness. It's him. It's him. Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. 
And if you're an unbeliever this morning, the, ju- the judgment of God should be a fear to you. Should be a fear. He's coming to judge the unrighteous. If you don't know Jesus, if you have not submitted to him as Lord, he's coming. But the good news this morning is he offers any that would come to come. Any that would say yes to him or welcome. If your life is not laid down before him, the altars are open. He says, come, he welcomes you. He runs as the father ran to the prodigal. He doesn't wait with a, with a glaring eye and a, and a paddle in his hand. He runs out to you. He loves you. Today is the day of salvation. If you're watching online this morning and you don't know Jesus and you don't love him and you don't serve him, he's the only way to the father. When he returns, he's your only defense. And the good news as a believer about judgment is that he was judged. The sin of us all was laid upon him. He is waiting for the reward of his suffering. And guess what? He is praying for you right now. He said to to Peter, he said, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But guess what? I'm praying for you. And for many of you, Satan is trying to sift you as wheat this morning. You're being drawn between two worlds, between heaven and hell. But guess what? He's praying for you. He's going to finish what he started in you. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace Church, you can visit us online at gracechurchnashville.com and find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Grace Church Nash. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.